I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to an exciting episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J. And across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi! Well, you were waiting on that one, weren't you? Well, I was hoping, like, because we're, like, freezing up for a minute. So yeah, right. Was, like, like, I'm the great white, and here's Monica. I'm like, uh, what? Okay. <laughs> uh, right. We're having a bit of uh, technical issues. I am right before we turned on the mics. I lost the screen. I couldn't see her. So, I was fine on this end. So, yes. Right. She, her end was fine. My end was messed up. Oh. Okay. We're recording this. I'm, I'm uh, on the 16th. Hopefully. So, yeah. Well, um, it, it's been all over the news now. Raquel Welch just died yesterday. Yeah, I mean, eighty-two man. She didn't look it either. No, I you know it wasn't it's a, a whole bunch of work because you know when you get too much work, then you look even worse. Um, Madonna. Right. Oh God, yeah. But you know what's amazing? She was born uh, in Chicago. Yeah, R- Raquel Welch is is a Chicago girl, so. Oh, which reminds me. Oh, shoot. Please please let her be buried in Chicago. Please let her be buried in Chicago. Please let her be buried. Oh, if she she was going to be... If she was going to be buried in up in one of the cemeteries around Chicago, I will drive there. I will skip work. I mean... Yeah, you're really not that far ahead, but... No, um, about about the other other Illinois thing, which actually I need a second to go. Oh, works out. Just I'll be back in a minute. Talk amongst yourselves or yourself. What, 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 okay, for those of you who may not know or may not remember so much, oh, god, I I, want to say about a good. 20 years ago, there was a book published called uh, The Most Dangerous Cities in America to Live In. And the, uh, the, the town that I live yeah. here, Kankakee, was. I wanted to do the introduction. I was going to say, it was like. Well, I, I was giving a little. Not the worst in the county. No. Not the worst in the state. No, but we not are not even the worst in the country. The worst we, in North America. Well, actually, worst in the state. Oh. We are number six. Well, back then it was worst in North America. Hey, so that's what I'm saying. Like when this, like, 
Yeah, we we Kankakee was the worst city in North America, and I think they based North America. I mean, this is all like like it's worse than Tijuana, which I was once. I was going to drink a Snapple, picked it out of the vent, you know, out of the you know the machine, which wasn't really. It was just like the glass door thing. Yeah, and I'm like, this has to be safe. There was fuzz growing on the bottom of it. Like well, no. Mean, <laughs> Tijuana's got the donkey show, but you know the the kink yeah, is. I'm like, uh, I saw that. I was like, I could not believe. Yeah, the yeah. October twenty two issue of Reader's Digest, the editor's letter. To yeah, well, the editor was, now um, is from Ken Kankakee. Well, it was basically when I, I when I when I was telling you about it, this thing happened like twenty years ago, or something like that. Um, David Letterman decided to help the city out and gave us a gazebo. Two gazebos. Well, he, he eventually gave us a second one because okay, it, it he won. He gave us the first one to help kind of boost the, the boost the city's morale up, get us higher mm-hmm. on the list. And what was funny is when he he got the mayor on the phone to do it. The mayor was on vacation in Florida. Just kind of like Ted Cruz. <laughs> right, kind of. <laughs> then he then he gave us another gazebo. And one, one of the gazebos is down where we do our farmer's markets in the spring, in the summer, and the fall. Well, more like summer and fall. The other one, I said, I guess you said they got it got chopped up and turned into a rocking chair for Dave's retirement. Yeah, that's what you know the editor's letter says. But I mean, it wasn't even just like they picked the name out of a bowl. I mean, it it was the places rated almanac. It was an actual study. It says that it looks mm-hmm. at crime, jobs, education, and other factors. Oh yeah. Once rated my hometown, Kankakee, Illinois, as the worst metropolitan area to live in North America. I was like, I had to look at it twice. I'm like, I really just... Yeah. <laughs> and I texted you right away, practically. Like, there was... Uh-huh. Well, the, the the crime is like astronomical. I'm not going to say astronomical, but I mean, we, we did have like three high-profile murders here. Um... One of the small, uh, one of the smalls. The family was like real big in politics. One, one of the, I think his great great grandfather was governor. He was he was kidnapped in like the late seventies, and um, he was put he was put into a, a, a makeshift coffin, had an had a little PVC pipe for air, and he suffocated in there. Basically, the same thing that happened to uh, the um, Exxon. Yeah. CEO back in 92. And then um, we had this horrible child murder. um, Tara Sue Huffman. She was murdered by a 14 year old boy, uh, Timothy Buss. He went, he got convicted. He was like the very first show Phil and I ever did. Huh. Um, and I want to cover him again because I, I want to get a. I I know there's a book somewhere out there on him, but 
he murdered this poor girl. She was like eight, seven, eight. Just, just murdered this poor girl. Went to went to juvie, and in juvie, he was, he was talking about how he was going to do it again, and he was not remorseful at all. Got released, and no sooner he gets released, he he kills a boy in a Roma Park. Uh, Christopher Myers. And he's in he he got I mean they they knew who did it. He you know fit his profile. He went went to prison. He went away for life. He were they were like, Yeah, you ain't getting out this time, buddy. And um he was he was up for something. I, I want to say we brought back the death penalty, but I don't think we did. But when uh, our when when one of our corrupt governors George Ryan was leaving office, he commuted his sentence to life. I you know, and and I know, well, just within the past year, uh, Tara Sue Huffman's nephew Nick he he had a bar here, the Looney Bin, and it was a great bar. I mean, he brought in a lot of great bands. Um, celebrities for like guest appearances, you know, like old wrestlers and shit. Because this town is a wrestling town. The the rednecks need something besides NASCAR. Yeah, speaking but, uh, of which, a couple days will be twenty two years for Earnhardt. Earnhardt. Yeah. So, but but um, no, Nick Nick just died recently. Um. Closing up the bar one night, I think he was either taking out trash or he was walking to his car and had a heart attack and died right there. Okay, I was going to say, like, please let it have been a heart attack or something. Yeah, it was a heart. Yeah, it was a heart. <laughs> now, the crime in this area, yeah. the crime in this area, I remember I was dating a girl. And I stayed the night at her house and I was driving to work in the morning, like five o'clock in the morning. I'm coming down Court Street. And a few blocks ahead of me, there's a car just speeding down the road. I mean, he hit so bad, the undercarriage hit the ground and sparks are flying. And, yeah, then yeah. As, and then as not even two seconds later, two squad cars came chasing after him. I'm like, oh, that's a wonderful way to wake up on a Monday morning. Well, it definitely woke you up. <laughs> right. I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. Now, um... For those of you who really want to want to see the this this area showcased, uh, go on YouTube. A guy from Hersher, one of the small farming communities around here, white boy, r- made a rap called "Not the Kink," and he filmed it at a stop and go gas station. I can't make this up. No. <laughs> no, he's actually dancing in the store and in the parking lot. And what gets me is the court. He starts naming communities. But the only thing is, is the communities are like Chicago suburbs, except for moments. He's like, <laughs> it's like moments, not the kink. Bowlingbrook, not the kink. Calumet City, not the kink. And my daughter's like, he went to Hersher. He could have like named Bourbonnet, Bradley, St. Anne. 
Like, yeah, well, he went to Hersher, uh-huh. so, you know, he's a retard. Yes. Yes, I will get you a picture of the uh, gazebo next time I'm near it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to pick up with our show. Uh, Sylvia Likens, part two this week. Now, if you remember from last week, mom and dad are going on the uh, East Coast Carnival Tour. <laughs> I like saying that, the, the East Coast Carnival Tour. And and I, I just thought about this at work. They they have an older sister, Diana, right? Yeah, Diana. Why didn't they just let the girl stay with her? Yeah, we're I guess because that would make too much sense. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, too much sense. I mean, it is Indiana in the sixties or fifties or whatever. So, but uh, so so they're uh, Sylvia and her sister Jenny are staying with uh, Gertrude, and because Dad's not paying on time, Gertrude is taking her anger and frustration out on poor Sylvia. So, to jump back into the story. Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of the torture and mistreatment Sylvia was subjected to, she gradually became incontinent. Now, y'all should know what incontinent is. I know Monica with her father, you know, medical uh, machine equipment, medical equipment profession. Medical equipment consulting. Well, did did he ever have to do a machine for incontinent? I'm sure. Yeah, because I mean, it's part of the hospital too, or something. Right. Yeah, I'm always wondering. Hospital. See, I'm always wondering if they have machines that help with uh, incontinence, like Roto Rooter. I'm not sure. Of course, my boss like listening to this and going like, "Yes." <laughs> much like I did with, you know, Bobby B back in the day. Right. Well, I know Which one made time... it much easier when we were in contact. I could go on the Facebook page and be like, um, good show, but. <laughs> well, I know um, I talked about taking a, like a Roto-Rooter snake up my nephew's butt one day to, to free up his problems. Uh-huh. And my son thought I was actually talking about a real snake. Oh. Yeah, yeah, let that one let, let that one marinate uh-huh. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So because she was incontinent, she was denied any access to the bathroom, being forced to wet herself. As a form of punishment for her incontinence, on October 6th, Gertrude threw lichens into the basement and tied her up. Here, she was often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. Folks, if what this girl went through does not turn your stomach, you are a heartless person. In the weeks prior to locking her in the family basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented Sylvia. She would occasionally falsely claim to her children in her household that either she, herself, 
or one of them had been receiving direct insults from Sylvia in the hope this would provoke them into belittling or attacking her. On one occasion, Gertrude held a knife aloft and challenged Sylvia to fight me back, to which Sylvia replied she did not know how to fight. In response, Gertrude inflicted a light light scar wound on her leg. Now, physical and mental torment such as this would occasionally pause when Gertrude watched her favorite television, when the family would watch their favorite television shows. Neighborhood children were also occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Now, throughout her captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and the neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Sylvia before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeding to rub salt into her wounds. Ouch. You know, there's probably some guys out there who uh, specify in torture that are probably taking notes on this. On one occasion, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper into Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating the water was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. On October 22nd, John Banaszewski Jr. tormented Likens by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly taking away the bowl when Likens, by this stage suffering from extreme malnourishment, attempted to eat the food. Gertrude Banaszewski eventually allowed Likens to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Likens had urinated on herself. As a punishment, Sylvia was forced to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in the presence of the Banaszewski children before Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to return to the kitchen, then ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming to her, you have branded my daughters, now I'm going to brand you. She began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, onto Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish etching the word into Sylvia's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. In what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Sylvia's abdomen as she clenched her teeth and mooned. Both Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Beneshevsky then led Sylvia into the basement, where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt in an attempt to burn the letter S beneath Sylvia's left breast, although they applied one section of the loop backwards, and this deep burn scar would resemble the number three. Gertrude later taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved in her stomach, stating, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? 
Weeping, Sylvia replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Sylvia was forced to display the carving to neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming she had received the inscription at a sex party. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. Damn, this, like I said, if this doesn't break your heart, there's something wrong with you. Now, that's probably, why, how many, like, decades, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, that's why, how many decades later, it's right. still, you know, obviously, we're talked about on everything. So. Right. The following okay. day, Gertrude woke Sylvia, then forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away from Gertrude's residence. The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating her after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her body. After Sylvia had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia, Sylvia, then take her to a nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and leave her there to die. After she had finished writing the letter, Sylvia was then again tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, although she refused them, saying, give it to the dog. I don't want it. In response, Gertrude forced the crackers into her mouth before she and John beat her particularly around the stomach. On October 25, Sylvia attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing a conversation between Gertrude and John, John Jr., pertaining to the family's plan to abandon her to die. She attempted to flee to the front door. However, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Sylvia was then given crackers to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the crackers into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and struck Likens one further time, rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Sylvia into the basement. That evening, Likens desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls of the basement with the spade. One immediate neighbor of the Banishevskys would later inform police she had heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the source as emanating from the basement of 3850 East New York Street, but that as the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., she decided not to inform police about the disturbance. By the morning of October 26, Blankens was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude moved Sylvia into the kitchen and having propped her back against the wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. She threw Sylvia to the floor in frustration when she was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips. She was then returned to the basement. Shortly thereafter, Sylvia became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, she was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters or to raise herself off the ground. In response, 
Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump upon her. Gertrude then ordered Sylvia, who had defecated, to clean herself. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other tormentors gathered in the basement. She jerkily moved her arms in the apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky and you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Sylvia unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness in her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, Don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in the hope of earning spending money. In an attempt to wash Sylvia, a laughing John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper and at Gertrude's request. Sylvia again desperately attempted to exit the basement, but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Sylvia's head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30, Richard Hobbs returned to Gertrude's house and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell heavily to the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean Sylvia. Stephanie and Richard then decided to give Sylvia a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was here and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming, Oh, she'll be all right. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, She attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Sylvia was faking her death. Sylvia was 16 years old when she finally succumbed to her injuries. Gertrude initially beat her corpse with a book shouting, Faker, Faker, in order to rouse her. However, she soon panicked and instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. When the police arrived at the address at approximately 6.30, Gertrude led the officers to to Sylvia's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned, and mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress in the bedroom before handing them the letters she had forced Sylvia to write previously by her dictation. She also claimed she had been doctoring the child for an hour or more prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to Sylvia's wounds in a futile attempt at first aid before she had died. Why do I think this is complete BS? Because it is. Okay. She added that Sylvia had earlier run away from her home with several teenage boys before returning to her house earlier that afternoon, bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula, having stated to all present in the household that Sylvia's death was meant to happen, then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, If you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. 
Kid Run. Run on that hobbled leg. Run. As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny recited the rehearsed version of events leading to Sylvia's death to police before whispering to the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Formal statement provided by Jenny Likens prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Banaszewski Jr. on suspicion of Likens' murder within hours of the discovery of her body. The same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were also arrested and charged with the same offenses. The three eldest Banaszewski children, plus Coy Hubbard, were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center. The younger Bashevsky children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardians Home. All were held without bail pending trial. I was wondering if uh, I was running it through my head to see if Manson was there, but no, he, he wasn't. Yeah, this would have been, he would have been too old. Well, when when uh, he was held in Indianapolis as a kid, I wonder, I thought he might have gone to the Guardians Home, but he wasn't. He he was held in oh, yeah. specialer places. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, can you imagine? Like oh God. Them both there at the same time too. Like, Tell you what, kids, I got this crazy idea. I'm a guru. We going to California. Uh-huh. So all were held without bail pending trial. Guess didn't say that. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Sylvia's death, although by October 27th, she had confessed to having known the kids, quote, unquote, particularly her daughter Paula and Coy Hubbard had physically and emotionally abused Sylvia, stating Paula did most of the damage and Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Man, throwing those kids under the bus. Yeah. Gertrude further admitted to having forced the girl to sleep in the basement on approximately three occasions when she had wet the bed. She became evasive when one officer stated the likely reasons Sylvia had become incontinent were her mental mental distress and injury to her kidneys. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to having repeatedly beaten Sylvia about the backside with her mother's police belt, once breaking her wrist on Sylvia's jaw and inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs into the basement two or three times and inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, adding that most of the time I used my fists to abuse her. He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the child with cigarettes. Five other neighborhood children who had participated in Sylvia's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested by October 29th. Guess what, kids? Halloween's canceled for you. No trick-or-treating. Boo-hoo. Oh, you're going to get trick-or-treated all right, but not in the way you wanted. It's going to be more tricks. Yeah, learn learn uh learn what to do for a pack of smokes, kids. 
all were charged with causing injury to person, and each one was subsequently released into the custody of the parents under subpoena to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, and in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and the stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Moreover, all of Sylvia's fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon her face, breast, neck, and right knee had been peeled or receded. In her death throes, Sylvia had evidently bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face. Now, the official cause of her death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Kebble as subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcontentious tissue plus the severe malnutrition, were listed as contributory factors to her death. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of the discovery of her body, indicating she may have been deceased for up to eight hours before she was found, although Dr. Kebble did did note Sylvia had been recently bathed and possibly after death, and that this act could have hastened the loss of body temperature and thus sped sped the onset of rigor mortis. The funeral service for Sylvia Likens was conducted at the Russell Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon on the afternoon of October 29th. The service was officiated by the Reverend Louis Gibson with more than 100 mourners in attendance. Likens' gray casket remained open throughout the ceremony with a portrait of her taken prior to July 1965 adorning her coffin. Uh, Lebanon, is that where Jim Jones came from? I'm not like, yeah, I'll keep reading you, Google check. Right. In his eulogy, the Reverend Gibson stated, we all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. The Reverend Gibson then strode toward Lycan's casket before adding, she has gone to eternity. Following this service, Lakin's casket was placed by pallbearers in a hearse and driven to the Oak Hill Cemetery to be interred. This hearse was one of a 14-vehicle procession to drive to the cemetery for Sylvia's burial. Her headstone is inscribed with the words, Our Darling Daughter. On December 30, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Banaszewski and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Banaszewski, Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. All were charged with having repeatedly struck, beat, and kicked, and otherwise inflicting a combination of fatal injuries to Sylvia Likens with premeditated malice. Three weeks prior to the filing of the indictments against the five defendants, Stephanie Banaszewski had been released from custody upon a 
a writ of habeas corpus bond with her attorney successfully contending the state had insufficient evidence to support any murder or culmination of fatal injury charges against her. Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia. Nope. Uh, Okay. At a formal pre-trial hearing held on March 16, 1966, several psychiatrists testified before Judge Saul Isaac Robb as to their conclusions regarding psychiatric evaluations they had conducted upon three individuals indicted in Sylvia's murder. These experts testified that all three were mentally competent to stand trial. No, it was uh, Richmond. Okay. I, I thought it sounded familiar, so that's why I grabbed my phone and Googled. Yeah. Okay, next week we're going to pick up with the trial. Because trust us, folks, you, you we, we don't mean to leave you hanging like this, but you got to have that cliffhanger. Well, that's what Arl Stein always with in the Goose, but I guess in Fear Street too. He wrote that he always like ended each chapter with a cliffhanger, I so the kid will keep reading. Right, man. I mean, I've seen some of his books come through on my uh, workstation. Uh-huh. Some of the older ones, yeah, not Goosebumps, but like the the ones he wrote for older kids. Fear Street. Yeah, I was a huge Fear Street fan. I still have all of them. I I really didn't read a lot of horror until I got into high school and it was Stephen King. Yeah, but that was more th- the girls too. But when um when Goosebumps started, I was the age like the kids were supposed to be, but I had already started reading Fear Street like in sixth grade, and the kids were supposed to be like twelve, so I was already past the goosebumps with having started Fear Street already. Yeah, some of the horror I read in grade school is like Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, Marty Pants. <laughs> I I love the gothic horror. I'm not going to... Yeah. I, I've been I'm over here reading, you know, about the dead you're right, you're Right, you're reading, you know, stuff and the slap. Oh, Christopher Pike, too. No, I was not reading Slappy. I just got the whole thing. Slappy was not on Fear Street. I was already had already read Fear Street, so I was not going to go back and read Goosebumps, which was not scary. I just, I just gross. Oh, it was in order for Boston. I I processed a bunch of mysteries, a lot lot of James Patterson, and so there's, there's probably about twelve guys in Boston who's reading mysteries right now. Yeah. But all right, folks. Wait, I guess. wait go by Jeff Gwynn to come in. Uh my copy says sitting it already. The, I want to read it. My my I haven't read my copy yet. My copy's sitting on the shelf. I'm uh I'm reading a biography I picked up. Where did I pick this one? I picked this one up at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. As a book on uh, Patrick Henry. I that's like it's gone thirty years this month for the original raid on the bridge. Yeah, um, that's just such a long one. It's been done so well by others that like don't right. Even, like some of them don't even really want to. Right. Attempt. Well, 
well, Waco's on the list. Um, I'm what waiting. For, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm waiting for my um, waiting for my other book on Natalie Wood to come in. I got a book on Betty Broderick coming in. When I when yeah. I first when I first heard that case, I heard it on another podcast. Amanda was cheering for her. Well, I have to say, yeah, the, like some of them. Yeah, I'm a team Betty girl too. So sorry. It makes me sleep with made me sleep with one eye op- open, palm and a blade. Well, like, like just basically, don't screw over the person that puts y'all through college and become a right. lawyer and a doctor and all stuff. Yeah, I do have one. I, I got to take a look at. I picked this up. About a serial killer who was running loose through Nazi-occupied Paris. I think that was. Well, the book I have is called "Death in the City of Light." Yeah, I've, I haven't read it, but I've seen that one too. Just yeah, but, but I'm like, there was a serial killer running around the Nazis. Oh yeah, he got my attention. Uh huh. But like I said, we're gonna next week we're gonna cover the trial. So join us then. Find us on Podbean, Castbox, Spotify. Join the Facebook page and for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0. I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.